Hey, it's Alex Pearson from On Point. Today on our podcast, we talk with Conservative MP Michelle Rempel about the health minister's continuous defending of not only China when it comes to the coronavirus, but her own government's handling of the virus when they knew before Donald Trump. Well, of course, we'll talk to Blacklock's reporting about the new federal internet regulations that are being kept secret by this government. And we'll also talk to... Uh, We'll talk to somebody about the new Israeli-Bahrain peace deal. It's not getting any attention, but if Donald Trump continues on this path in the Middle East, we are talking about a pretty good legacy of peace with Israel and a number of Arab nations. So we'll talk about that. Let's get started. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. Is it coming? Uh, yeah, I, I believe it's coming. As sure as I'm standing here, and I hope to God I'm I'm wrong. I'd love to be up here a month later and say I, I was wrong, but it, it's coming. We don't see a, a spike like this uh, so quickly. We're back at numbers we haven't seen since June, and Premier Ford's got a stark warning we'll shut down again, and that includes the strip joints. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, September 14th. I hope you had a terrific weekend. They go so quickly. But uh, here we are as we start getting kids back into school from pretty much the biggest boards in the province, and at a time when the experts warned this could be the start of the second wave. We could be in it now. And my little guy goes back on Thursday because it's a staggered start. And so like every other parent, we're watching the numbers. Am I concerned yet? Mm, I'm going to ask the doctor. I'll ask the doctor, should I be concerned? Because I kind of follow his lead. But I've been, I mean, I've been bombarded by this list of must-dos, must-haves, the supplies needed, you know, where the kids will go into the building, how they're going to eat lunch, where they'll play, who they can play with, and also a screening app for a health screening that had to uh, be downloaded on my phone. And then, of course, now I have to fill that in every single day, which is going to be a lot of fun. But the brunt of the kids are heading back. So that's a lot of numbers now. But the numbers we are seeing as far as COVID cases, we saw these numbers in June. But in March 31st, so think back to, to, to March 31st, we had 260 cases. And now we're at 313. So what does this mean for school? I mean, is it doomed before we start? Does it mean another shutdown? I mean, what does it, what does it mean? Christine Elliott was asked for that, like, what's this all mean? Here's what she said. We have seen an increase in cases, obviously, over the last short while and, a, and a, a disturbing, significant increase today. So whether this is the start of the second wave or not, it certainly has our attention and we are dealing with it. There have been three different uh, types of, of return that have been modeled for us. One is just small surges, small up and down. Others are more peaks and valleys. And the third, uh, the one that is causing us greatest concern, is a sudden very big peak. So we're prepared for the worst and we are ready for it. Sure hope so. Uh, but but it's obvious that folks are, they're just casual with this whole thing now. Partiers are going to party. And it is not the strip joints and the bars that are the problems. No, no, no. It is those having parties, weddings, large gatherings, you know, they just don't think they're part of this whole thing. And the brunt of the cases we are seeing 
involve people under 40. I, I don't know if they just don't care. I don't know if they just don't get it. I don't know if they watch the news. But the warning today, and it was very clear to see the tone change at Queen's Park, is that the numbers that we have now are showing that the window to shutting things down is closing. And the last thing we need right now are schools closed again. But the businesses also won't survive a second shutdown. I had a chat over the weekend with a successful business owner who I hadn't been able to see for a long time. Um, and she said, plain and simple, she will not survive a second shutdown. And this is a business that did very, very well, has always been around for a long time doing well. They will not survive a second shutdown. And the premier, he said today, you know, it, it, it'll be a regional shutdown. But again, we're talking GTA and Toronto, Ottawa as well. But for us, GTA and Toronto and, and Toronto businesses can't survive this shutdown again. Just can't. But I was watching 60 Minutes last night because I kind of think, OK, maybe I've got an idea of why people are, aren't listening. I don't know if you caught 60 Minutes last night, but they had to sit down with Bob Woodward uh, talking about his new book about Trump. Here's what stuck out to me. So Bob Woodward asks Trump a question about, you know, when did you know about the virus? And Donald Trump said he was briefed on January 28th. And that was when Trump knew about it and how deadly it was. Now, I'm not defending Trump, okay? Don't care. I don't care about his handling or mishandling of COVID-19. He'll have to deal with that. But I'm just pointing out that we are hypocrites over our own mishandling of this thing. And Health Minister Patty Haidu was on the West Block this weekend. And remember, she knew in late December about the virus and the dangers. Justin Trudeau told us just last Thursday he was fully briefed on this January 2nd. And yet she was pressed a few times by Mercedes Stevenson. You know, why did you wait so long to act? We've always followed the advice of our public health officials. And in fact, at that time, the risk to Canadians was indeed low. There were very few cases in Canada. We were screening from the affected countries. And when it became apparent that this virus was spreading uncontrollably in countries that were not reporting any cases, we took even stronger measures. Yeah, no, that's just not true. I'm sorry. That is not true. Because scientists in this government in December were warning of the dangers. Liberal cabinet documents warned of the imminent dangers in February, the beginning of February. We had epidemiologists warning of community spread happening in Toronto as early as January. And we already know we had thousands of people flying in from hot zones, including Wuhan, China, Iran, and the Trudeau government did nothing. They did nothing. Instead, they let everyone, you know, go off on March break, keep traveling, keep working, keep doing all this stuff. All we kept hearing was it's low risk and we're prepared. We don't need masks. So Mercedes Stevenson kept pushing. If you knew that this was such a dangerous virus, yet you weren't closing borders and you were telling Canadians that it was a low risk to them. I think if we had closed the borders in January with no cases, I think it would have been a, a sense of uh, incredul incredulity uh, by Canadians and by many other partners. In fact, as you know, uh, closing international borders is a very serious, serious decision. It has major economic implications, which are also very difficult for the country. And I think the measures that we took around screening is exactly what evidence and science says. Mm -hmm. Except, again, not true. 
Look, Donald Trump closed the borders to, to travel with China back in February. So I think a case could have easily been made that we follow our neighbors. But instead, we were being called racists. And the other question, how did our government know before the Trump administration? I mean, was there absolutely no shared intelligence with the United States? No conversations between leaders? And as for the screening, it has been a joke since day one. And we know that because travelers have been telling us, certainly in the heyday of this thing, they weren't asked anything. They got a little piece of paper. Here's what you do. And we barely have quarantine rules that are followed now, let alone punished. I mean, six months into this thing, we haven't given any tickets. We still have archaic tracing. We have no widespread testing. But then Mercedes asked the minister this very straightforward question. You were asked early in the pandemic about whether the Chinese had underplayed the numbers that they were experiencing and the severity of this disease. You had dismissed that as a conspiracy theory. In retrospect, do you think that China was honest and was forthcoming in the intelligence it shared with the global community and Canada about the risk? Look, very early on, China alerted the World Health Organization to the emergence of a novel coronavirus and, and, and also shared the sequencing of the gene, which allowed countries to be able to rapidly produce tests to detect it in their, in their own countries. I think the, the phenomenon of underreporting is going to be something that we'll hear about across the world. Oh, God. How difficult is it to simply point out the truth? I mean, it is very well documented that China lied in those early days and then went around the world buying up PPE. I do not understand why this government has a such a difficult time, not only standing up for this country, but basically standing up to this dangerous regime. I mean, you'll recall, Australia is the only one demanding they be investigated. I mean, we don't need another learning experience. We know that they lied. And so now we're back to the numbers we haven't seen for months. Maybe that's because people... You know, maybe we're getting those numbers because people just don't buy what they're being sold. They don't trust the experts who have been, you know, wrong more than they've been right. I don't know if you saw it over the weekend. There were thousands of anti-maskers marching in Quebec because they don't believe those in charge. Neither do the people holding big weddings, throwing big parties. They just don't either trust what they're being told. They're completely ignorant or they don't care about the costs at large that will happen if we head into this second wave. So sure, gnash your teeth at Trump, fair enough. But the Trudeau government also played down the threat. They just didn't do an interview with Bob Woodward and put it on record, but they absolutely played down a threat that they knew even before the US president. And then of course they tried to make up a response on the fly. So it's not the strip joint that's the problem. I mean, it'll get all the headlines, but that's not who the problem is. The problem is those whose job is to protect us, whether it's Trump or Trudeau, decided to play politics with this pandemic. Therefore, we're going to pay the price. But let's talk about the numbers. We've got the doctor on standby because the cases, as you well know now, are into the three mat 300s. But what matters about the cases is the number of hospitalizations and who have it, and whether or not this is now a community spread. But the hospitals did issue a warning. They are ringing the alarm bells that we have to be very careful because they have cases within. Who knew what and when about COVID-19? You know, Donald Trump uh, revealed 
in a 60 Minutes piece uh, uh, involving Bob Woodward last night that he learned on January 28th about this virus and how dangerous it was. And so while everyone's freaking out here in Canada about Trump downplaying this dangerous virus, why isn't the current government getting the same scorn? Health Minister Patty Hadju knew in late December about this thing. And Justin Trudeau said the other day he knew about it in January 2nd. And we also know liberal cabinet documents stated it was dangerous and threat. And we know that the Trudeau government's own scientists were waving the red flags in in December. And yet we know this government also did nothing for months. We didn't have border closures. We had weak to no screening. All we heard for weeks and weeks and weeks is this thing is low risk. We're prepared. Don't worry about masks. They don't help. I mean, doesn't that sound to you like they downplayed it? Let us bring in Michelle Rempel-Garner, who is the newly minted health critic. Good to have you with us. You know, um, up to mid-March, Canadians were traveling all over the world. There was no urgency. We knew there was weak screening. And six months in, I mean, we still have weak screening and shut borders. So would it be fair to say this government also downplayed it? I think that they knew about it and made a conscious political choice to not act. And that was a deadly choice that, frankly, cost thousands of Canadians their lives. We are heading into, um, you know, the, the term second wave is now being said kind of on an hourly basis, not just by the politicians. Doug Ford basically said it today, but uh, epidemiologists are warning that the numbers, especially as we see in Ontario, 313 cases. Uh, do you get the sense that they're ready for a second wave? Absolutely not. And I mean... Like, let's back up to, to what you said on the front end of this interview. The Trudeau's health minister was out on Thursday evening on national television, television saying that she knew about the dangers of COVID in late December and early January, that she was fully briefed. I remember being in the House of Commons, Alex, in January, on the few days that Trudeau allowed Parliament to sit this year, where we asked them, like, are you going to implement border screening measures? What about, you know, the, the risk to Canadians? And they, they were like, nope. You know, like, Patty Haiju was out saying that border measures didn't work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. when they briefed the health committee, uh, they said that it's going to be rare. And well, so, so they said germs don't know that, borders. Exactly. And, and so, you know, from so if you look at that response, we're seven months in now, and you, you bring up the issue of a second wave. We're on, you know, an uptick of cases. It is completely unacceptable that seven months in, the only thing that we're hearing from Justin Trudeau is like, hmm, well, I guess we might shut the economy down again. Like that completely ignores the reality of, you know, people in my community that I talk to who are like, look, I've got shared custody arrangements. I, I don't have a job. I'm trying to pick up hours here and there. So, 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 you know, if the only solution that they have is a quarantine or an economic shutdown, that's just, it doesn't, it's so out of touch with Canadians who have struggled so much throughout this year, and they need to be held to account for that. So they knew, they downplayed it and did nothing, that cost Canadians lives, and now they've done nothing over the last seven months outside of spend time on their own scandals, Right. And all we're looking at is a repeat of the same from seven months ago. It's completely unacceptable. There's so many other things that we could be doing that the government could have been looking at to deal with this. And they've got to go. Like they, they can, you know, they're asking Canadians to trust them with their lives and their livelihoods. And there's 
absolutely nothing to say that that's what Canadians should do. And they have to be held to account for that. Yeah, I mean, and I'm going to be having a conversation with uh, Daryl um, Bricker of Ipsos in the nine o'clock hour, and he has looked into this. You know, there's not a lot of appetite in this country for, um, you know, an election. But even if we did have a possible election in the next couple of weeks, uh, you know, which was something the Liberals were very uh, angry, uh, hungry for, it seemed, um, you know, it could be in the middle of a, a second wave. But let me just take you back, you know, if if. And I didn't know Donald Trump didn't know until January 28th. It shocks me that the U.S. president would have known three weeks after our government about this virus. Wouldn't there be intelligence sharing between the two countries? Would there be no obligation of a prime minister in Canada talking to the U.S. president saying, look, here's what we're looking at? I mean, Trudeau said he was fully briefed on this, but why wouldn't there be intelligence shared with our neighbor? I know that there was an article published today that suggested that there would have been intelligence that had been shared. Uh, We know that our own uh, intelligence agencies were tracking this issue and providing that information to the government early on. So, you know, again, you you don't have to take my word for it. Trudeau's health minister was out last week and she said, I knew, I knew, right? Right. So now they need to be held to account for that. Like at this point in time, this is, it's all about a question of how we move forward. You know, you talk about a fall election. Um, there's a lot of talk in Ottawa that the Trudeau Liberals will orchestrate something so that they can go to the Governor General and call an election themselves, in spite of what any of the opposition parties are doing. And to me, that suggests that they are very much interested in holding power for power's sake. They're not, they don't have a plan for Canadians' health and safety. They don't have a plan to deal with an uptick in cases. They don't have a plan to restart the economy. And it's because they've been so myopically focused on you know, self-enrichment and scandals like the We Charity scandal. Um, enough is enough. You know, I, I, I sympathize with provincial governments who have had, to, had this responsibility abdicated to them. Uh, we need leadership at the federal level and, uh, you know, in, in, by any measure, especially in the context of the pandemic, Justin Trudeau does not fit the bill. When you look at the numbers of, you know, Canada is always praised as doing such a good job. And that's kind of the narrative, certainly, that the Trudeau government has gone. But when you look at the numbers, uh, Japan, um, Canada's had 29 times the death rate of Japan, 50 times the death rate of New Zealand, 55 times the death rate of Australia. My concern is over the last five or six months, um, the concern has been more focused on, on scandals and such, but also because there's been no sitting parliament and then it got prorogued. I don't have any idea, neither do Canadians at large, of what the plan is for a second, um, you know, hit by this virus? Would we see regional shutdowns? Would we see a national shutdown? I mean, have you as opposition had any meetings with this government at all to talk about, you know, second steps, given we were told that you guys were all working together? The Trudeau Liberal government has done uh, virtually nothing to uh, reach out to opposition parties in fact, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. They shuttered Parliament and then they prorogued Parliament. So they don't have it. Like, Justin Trudeau has no interest in working through a democracy, right? Uh, Justin Trudeau does not want to be held to account for his decisions. And I, I'm so glad that you raised this. By any measure, regardless of political stripe, Justin Trudeau's decisions and failures have cost Canadians their lives, right? We can talk about job loss and economic loss, but, you know, he went for two and a half months 
knowing the dangers of this virus and deciding to not put in place any sort of screening or border measures that could have helped us, that could have, as a country, given us some lead time to manage this issue. Um, you know, he let the toothpaste get out of the tube. He has no plan to manage going forward. And that's unconscionable. You know, how are we seven months in? And he's looking at out-of-work Canadians and saying, well, you might have to stay at home for another four months and don't really have a plan to deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, why aren't we looking? Why haven't they done feasibility testing uh, for for at-home testing? Why haven't they looked at best practice from other countries? Why are we just relying on, you know, this man who has, you know, just completely ignored our democracy or any responsibility. And I think it's something Canadians should be angry about, and they shouldn't just be taking his word for it. Well, on that note, I mean, I agree. I just think parents across this country have been too busy and business owners either saving their their, their livelihood or, or trying to deal with their children and their jobs. I mean, we've got a million and a half kids going back to school just in uh, Ontario this week alone. And we've got cases breaking out all over. We're, we're a case count over 313. We're seeing numbers that we saw back in June. Um, and so the question, I guess, to you is, you know, as the opposition, whether, you know, you're going to have to make a decision to support a throne speech, um, either to keep them in power to get through the next little bit or bring the government down. Where is the priority going to be? Well, look, uh, our leader, Aaron O'Toole, has been out saying that his focus is on getting Canadians back to work, ensuring the health and safety of Canadians. Um, so we're going to look at the throne speech, but every every indication that we've heard out of the Trudeau government um, to date, anything that they've been floating and sort of trial balloon testing ahead of the speech from the throne suggests a very divisive, very uh, nationally divisive, very debt-written written speech from the phone, uh, throne designed to wedge the country in order to bolster Justin Trudeau's political fortunes. And at the end of the day, you know, it would be too early for me to say which way we're going to go without having looked at the speech from the throne. But we're not going to accept um, a no-plan scenario from a man who knew about the coronavirus, did nothing, downplayed it, uh, cost Canadians their lives, and has no plan to deal with the future, not to mention the fact that he's scandal-plagued. So uh, certainly we're at a crossroads right now in Canada in terms of which path we're going down. And I think Canadians want assurances that they that the economy is going to be stable, that they have a prospect to work, that they're going to be safe, that their kids are going to be safe going back to school. And we're not seeing that leadership out of Justin Trudeau. So um, certainly there's a lot to review and a lot to watch in Ottawa over the next couple of weeks. But I know that Canadians can rest assured that uh, the Conservative Party of Canada is going to be fighting uh, for them on these fronts. Well, you certainly got a tough job uh, in a very tough ministry right now uh, to keep them uh, in check. And uh, there'll be lots to check on. Uh, we'll continue watching and I'll have you. Yeah, you're up for the task. Well, there you go. Uh, we'll we'll have you on again and, and maybe get your reaction around uh, time of the throne speech. I appreciate you I coming on. That. Thanks so much. That is uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, who is the new health critic. And you bet the opposition has a ton to chew on when it comes to this issue, because this narrative of, you know, forget Donald Trump. What did our government not do? Why did they play it down? And that narrative is actually picking up steam. All right, it is time to dig between the headlines and find all those hidden nuggets that often don't get the attention that they should, but they actually should because they actually 
uh, do affect you, and no one does it better these days in Blacklock's reporting. And that's where we bring in Tom Korski, managing editor of Blacklock's reporting. Good to have you, Tom. Thank you, Alex. So it's busy times in Ottawa, despite the fact that we are prorogued. And there's a couple of interesting um, stories. This one's important, but it's not getting much attention. Heritage Minister Stephen Gaboul, uh, he's drafted this legislation to regulate all things, you know, internet content. But uh, they've been very, very sketchy with the details on this. I mean, it's come out in dribs and drabs and proved to be kind of a disaster in the making since day one. But, you know, if anyone wants the details... He's, his department's basically saying, go get an access to information request for five bucks. But you and I well know, as do does any journalist in Ottawa, those take months. They uh, don't want to get that discussion paper out. It is ironically titled a discussion paper on <laughs> regulating Internet content. Uh, but that's nobody's business. No, uh, they've had requests and they have told MP senators and us essentially drop dead. Uh there's something going on. They will not drop this idea, Alex. They, they perceive this problem with legal content on the Internet. Uh, uh, illegal content on the Internet is already covered amply by the criminal code. But they uh, perceive this problem with whether they characterize it as disinformation or hate speech. I'm using air quotes, but you can't see that. No, I can hear it in your reflection. And they are uh, chasing regulations of Internet content. And the implications are, frankly, breathtaking. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court shrinks from this. There's no court in the land that would even touch this. And Cabinet has had, frankly, this fetish about Internet regulation going back uh, to the 2019 election, which is when it first appeared. And they're not dropping it. No, and of course, it would be publications like yourself that would be affected because, you know, they want places like yourselves to get licenses. And, and I mean, if people understood what they want, I mean, put aside the fact that they want to put a sales tax or another tax on the sales tax of Netflix, which would drive up costs for consumer. There are these very, very problematic censorship issues that I don't think would stand even the basics of a charter challenge. The the cabinet has this obsession, I, 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 I can't think of another word to explain it, about getting in the newsroom. They got into the newsroom with subsidies for newspapers, and there were money-losing publishers who were desperate for aid, and they took it. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the conditions for those subsidies is right of reply uh, by the government of Canada. If the government of Canada does not like an article that appeared in your newspaper, you must give them a right of rebuttal. That's a condition of the uh, bailout money, the $595 million bailout money. That's outrageous. Yeah. That, that was struck down. That's not even a point of law, Alex. That was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1938. You can't do that. They have this thing about uh, internet control, what people say about the internet, what is uh, appropriate discourse, what is, it's none of their business. The role of the government in internet or your Facebook post or our newsroom is no role. That's the way it is, but they're just not giving up on this. Yeah, and I'll be very clear, uh, Global News does not get one darned cent of that subsidy. 
Um, but, but it does have wide ranging implications. And, you know, you almost think with this government, it's like a soft dictatorship, the things that they want to do, the draconian measures they're going to take. I mean, anyone who thought Stephen Harper was a control freak, I mean, these guys make him look like a pussycat. The other story, and again, all fell under the radar, and I'm not sure how, but this police investigation, which lasted a couple of years into ex-liberal MP out of Brampton, Raj Grewal, um, and, and he had sat on a, a finance committee during this whole time. Um, and the, the ironic thing is he complained of banking reg regulations as a member of this committee, because at the time, I guess he was trying to get bank loans. And so he would have to report any kind of cash transaction of $10,000. Um, and this is, is all under the Proceeds of Crime and Terrorist Financing Act. And, and of course, his complaint to the own committee he was sitting on was there's too many regulations on these, uh, on these um, you know, bank transactions. Well, meanwhile... The irony was noted. <laughs> the, the RCMP charged this man with fraud and breach of trust. The implication is he, uh, well, let's be frank. The implication is he stole public money uh, to play blackjack and he was not good at it. He lost millions of dollars, uh, admitted to a gambling addiction. As a member of the Commons Finance Committee, he did complain at a 2018 meeting about uh, his uh, fiancée who worked at a bank. And she, as he told this hearing, he, she asked me to open an account at this bank. And then we got a bunch of grief when we wired $5,000 to India. So he said she could buy a traditional wedding dress for their upcoming wedding. Well, it turns out the RCMP say in a statement that it was exactly that banking regulation, suspicious transactions of thousands of dollars that are unexplained from an inexplicable source to a dubious uh, vendor or client, any wire at all, it's a federal law has to be reported. As an MP, he was subject to extra scrutiny. Now we understand Mr. Gruwal's angst about banking regulations. He makes his first uh, first court appearance in the October in Ottawa. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if more charges are laid or where you know where this thing goes. Hard to think that no one in the prime minister's office didn't know anything about this kind of investigation, given he was sitting on that finance committee. But uh, maybe that's all just part of the investigation was trying to get him, uh, you know, see if he would do anything. Again, none of the allegations proved in court, but uh, boy, oh boy, there is a theme with this government and um, it's just a fascinating case. We'll see what uh, our next conversation brings with these days. And as I said, proroguing of parliament has not left Ottawa quiet this summer. So lots of digging for you guys. Appreciate it, Tom. Uh, my pleasure, Alex. That is Tom Korski. He is managing editor of Black Locks Reporting, which is a subscription base. They don't get any of that Ottawa money and uh, doing quite well. So if you like the kind of hidden nuggets of politics, they get all of them. So again, Black Locks Reporting. This has not gotten to much attention. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of folks are just blinded by their hate for Donald Trump. But a second Arab country has now made peace with Israel in less than a month. The first country being the United Arab Emirates, and now Bahrain has signed off on normalizing relations. And look, call it what you will, but it is no small feat. And if you can park your politics, which is very hard for people to do, it would be quite a legacy for Mr. Trump, and even more so if his administration can sign a deal with Saudi Arabia. But what does it mean to normalize relations? 
Let us ask someone who probably knows. Avi Benlolo is a human rights advocate. He joins us now. And so far, there are four countries in the Middle East that have uh, normalized relations. And, and so no longer are they insisting that, you know, it can only be done if the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was settled. But it, what does it mean? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, and thanks again for having me on your show, Alex. It's always a pleasure to be here. I love your show. Um, and certainly these are very interesting times because the U.S. election is right around the corner and uh, Trump and his administration um, have done, I have to say in this regard, a great job in terms of bringing together Israel and now the UAE and Bahrain uh, on top of Jordan and Egypt, uh, which were previously signed on uh, through peace agreements onto a new peace deal and the signing ceremony will take place uh, tomorrow uh, in Washington. And everybody is very excited about um, this new agreement. Um, it presents a lot of opportunity for um, all the countries involved, particularly in the world of business, high tech, science. Um, it opens up uh, Israel to those markets and those markets now are going to welcome Israel because Israel today, of course, is a, an innovation hub. It is the Silicon Valley of the Middle East mm -hmm. um, with thousands and thousands of patents um, taking place every year uh, in these sectors. And um, now it's open to these Gulf states. You know, I mean, one of the parts of the the arrangement or the agreement, it has to, you know, Israel has to suspend plans to annex parts of the occupied West Bank. But what, you know, what's changed? I mean, Trump initially boasted that he'd be brokering a peace deal between Israel and Palestine. That did not work out. And so now these other countries are no longer holding that as the um, as the the goalpost for them agreeing to anything. And is it is it more so now? Um, obvious that it's just because Iran has become such a threat? Yeah, well, there's several things going on at the same time. Uh, obviously, I think that um, um, many Arab states are frustrated with the Palestinians. I think that's clear. The Palestinians, you know, uh, first of all, they're divided within. You've got Hamas and Gaza, and then you've got the Palestinian Authority, and there's nothing you know, there, there's, 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 there's nothing going on there except for lots of hostility against uh, Israel. And um, the Palestinians are not coming to the table. They did not uh, warm up to the Trump peace agreement, which would have poured in billions and billions of, of international aid into the Palestinian territories. And they completely um, refused to even have a conversation uh, with, the, with the Trump administration about peace. So that I think frustrated many, uh, um, many uh, friends of the U.S. in the Gulf, uh, which include obviously the UAE and Bahrain. Um, and so they said, okay, we've had enough. We want to now have a peace agreement with Israel. And by virtue of having that peace agreement, we believe that it's going to be beneficial to the Palestinians. I, for one, think that's a, that's a great strategy because in fact, Israel, as, as we all know, has retreated from annexing uh, some of the West Bank uh, because of the UAE agreements. Already it's had a tremendous uh, effect on, on them. Um, and I believe that other, uh, other states, other Arab states will fall into line. Uh, Oman could be next. Uh, Saudi Arabia could make a very surprising uh, peace agreement 
with Israel. And of course, there's Morocco, which seems to be an outlier, but Morocco has had great and warm relationships with uh, Israel. Uh, there is a huge uh, Moroccan community in Israel that visits Morocco every single year. And uh, it, it would be a, just a natural course of action. And Morocco is a fairly moderate Arab state. So um, there is a, you know, there's a big, um, there's big optimism on the horizon before the U.S. election. And I do believe at least one or two other states will join in. Yeah, it, it, it's something to watch, certainly. And if Saudi Arabia uh, signs on, obviously a big, big game changer. Um, but what does it mean then? You know, we've had deals before. Jimmy Carter signed, you know, deals, peace deals have been struck between Palestine and Israel, but they fall apart almost instantly. How is this different? Um, yeah, th this is different, actually. It's, it's very different, which is what is so interesting about this. The Egyptian-Jordanian peace accords were really a marriage of convenience. They were not and have never been warm uh, peace. Uh, the economic relationship has been very, very minimal. Tourism has been minimal, you know, and it's always, um, it, it's been a very cold peace. Uh, in this case, what we're seeing is actually an incredibly warm peace. It's so interesting. You know, the UAE received a delegation from Israel, yeah. um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, so warmly with Israeli flags flying with, with you know. Well, they gave them a red carpet treatment. I mean, when have you ever seen them take it, you know, an Israel airline on the tarmac and them waving it off? That, that's, that's quite unusual. Very, very unusual. Of. Very unusual, very warm, and already flights and delegations are happening as we as we speak into the UAE, and then now the UAE is planning a delegation to Israel, and and uh, there's already I'm hearing from friends of mine there's already uh, back and forth business discussions that are that we're seeing, um, and so this is it's really quite unbelievable, and uh, and I believe the same thing will happen with with Bahrain, and so the relation and the dynamics are completely different, unlike anything we've seen before. And that is what is making this so promising and incredible. And do you suspect then that it's just a matter of time between pressure, you know, a pressure ratcheting up that the Palestinians will ultimately have to make a decision? Either they sever ties with Hamas and, you know, go along and get along with those in the Middle East, or are they going to try to stick this one out with the terror body behind them? I, I don't see that as a long-term um, success story for them. You know, I don't know, because the Palestinians, you know, it's been said countless times over the last uh, two, two to three decades that the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. I just cannot understand why it is that they are so resistant uh, to coming up with a compromise, and there's, they continue to be hostile on many issues. They believe that you know they're going to get Jerusalem when it's clear that they're not. Um, you know they they believe that they're going to have all of these refugees come in and pour into Israel to destabilize the country, which of course it's never going to happen. And so their their quest is just relentless. And they refuse to really um, deal with reality um, that Israel is here to stay. Israel is a very successful and strong country. 
and is now being recognized by, by many Arab nations. Israel has had great relations with uh, India, as an example, the very strong and strengthening relationship, and even with uh, China. And so Israel is being accepted, uh, you know, continuously on a yearly basis, um, you know, by everybody except for the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. and, and that is actually, you know, terrible for the Palestinians. I would love to see a Palestinian state living side by side harmoniously, peacefully with Israel and without Hamas. Yes. Well, I, you know, it's a fascinating uh, time in history. It's not getting any attention because uh, as I go back to my point, I think if you hate Trump, you'll never give him credit for this. Even Jews don't give him credit for this, but it's right. hard not to. And it would be quite a legacy for this president if, in fact, he continues on this track. Avi, I uh, really appreciate you. When, um, when another country signs on or Saudi Arabia, I will talk to you again. Okay, looking forward to it. Thank you. Appreciate it. That is Avi Benlolo uh, joining us here. And yeah, look, Parker Politics, it's a big deal. It's just kind of crazy that it doesn't, it doesn't even get a blip on the radar. But hey, that is the world we live in. That is your podcast for today. You, of course, can join us live on point Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.